Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 17, that is, verses 24 through 27. The text is also printed on the next page of your bulletin. Follow along there. And uh, there are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one of those. Uh, You know, going through Matthew's Gospel for a while now. And again, uh, we are here in a section that focuses uh, largely on Jesus as the beloved Son of God who shares his sonship with us. Uh, So it's a section about sonship, divine sonship. And of course, you know, it means a lot uh, when you talk about entering into that kind of new relationship with God as your father. Jesus reveals true sonship to us. He reveals what it looks like throughout his life, everything that he does. Uh, He reveals what it looks like for the son of God to live in this world. So for him, it means, you know, loving those who are difficult to love. It means loving us with a forgiving love all the way to the cross, all the way to his death, even to share resurrection life. This is what it means for him to be the son of God, is to share resurrection life and the glorious presence of God with sinners, to reestablish this relationship of sonship that we were meant to have with God. For Jesus, his sonship means pouring out the spirit of sonship on us so that we can be with him where he is, so that we can walk this world sharing in his life as the Father's beloved Son. And so here, uh, in our passage this morning, we'll see that sonship means freedom. It means true freedom. We're going to talk about the nature of that freedom this morning. Uh, But briefly, enjoying a relationship of sonship to God, it transforms every part of our lives, transforms our relationships with other people, it transforms our participation in religious activities and cultural traditions, even transforms our relationship to God's own law. It's characterized by freedom. And so uh, let's explore the freedom of the children of God. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, give us the mighty help of your spirit as we consider the word of your son this morning together now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 17, starting in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So only Matthew includes this strange little story in his gospel, uh, the thing with the fish and the coin in its mouth. Uh, There's really quite a lot going on here, and the best way into it, uh, just got to jump right into it, is really to put ourselves in Peter's shoes. So we're going to spend a little time thinking what it was like for Peter uh, in this little story. So Capernaum, they're in Capernaum now. That's the home base for Jesus and for Peter. That's where Peter's home is. Uh, And for the rest of the disciples, it's home base. So after returning from their recent trip, 
that Matthew is recorded into uh, Gentile lands, Gentile country, sort of non-Jewish borderlands. Now they're in a place where, you know, they're sort of back from the special mission trip, and now the mundane needs of everyday life uh, catch up with them. It's time to pay their taxes. <laughs> and now these are not uh, taxes as we normally think of them. They're not local, county, state, federal, or in their case, imperial taxes. Uh, this is a temple tax. It's pretty specific. And its collection, uh, the co- collection of this half a shekel from every person, uh, it has its roots in Scripture all the way back in the Mosaic Law. We read about it in our Old Testament reading at Ransom Read uh, from Exodus 30, where Yahweh said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life, to Yahweh when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one is, who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half a shekel, as an offering to Yahweh. So in Numbers chapter 1, that was the end of Exodus. A little bit later in the scriptures, God's dealing with his people in Numbers chapter 1. And then again in Numbers 26. These are the two times when God instructed Moses to take a census out in the wilderness. Each man, the point of the census It's really to collect numbers for um, who's going to battle, who's battle ready. So each man, older than 20 and able to go to war, would have been counted. And those are the ones who have to pay the half shekel. And that's when he would have paid, at the time of the census. And the money from that went to the service of the tabernacle, which, you know, the tent of meeting. It's basically a mobile temple, right? It's it's the, the place that Israel carried along with them, the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. And that's where this tabernacle tax would go, to the service of the tabernacle. Now, it seems to me that um, there was something unique about those two censuses that God commanded Moses to take of these battle-ready Israelites as they're going into the promised land, going into war. God was leading them in a very specific thing at that time. And that the half-shekel tax, was maybe it was limited to those two instances, Uh, There are times in other parts of the Old Testament when kings sort of pick up on that theme and they reinstitute the same tax. Uh, For the service of the temple, that is that permanent structure in Jerusalem first built by Solomon to be the place of God's glory on earth. I'm not 100% sure that that was so good for them to do, to just apply that tax, that census tax, uh, for temple purposes, whether that was, you know, according to the attention of God's original command in Exodus 30, whatever the case, by the time of Jesus, apparently this has become a regular tax. Uh, Certainly not limited to the time of a census. Maybe it's even an annual tax collected by those who were in charge of the temple. So in a culture where their religious traditions define their society in ways that uh, can be hard for us to imagine, overt, obvious ways, Uh, And where this practice was to some degree rooted in thousand-year-old scripture, then paying this half-shekel temple tax would have been an expectation for you. If you're going to be a good Jew, maybe even an indicator of your patriotism, your, your loyalty to your nation. So... You know, other taxes go to Rome. We hate paying those taxes because they go to our enemies who are oppressing us. This tax is good for our own people, for our own temple. It's the heart of our religious and cultural life together. 
and any good Jew should be happy to pay this tax. Now, the people who were in charge of the temple tax, people who were in charge of the temple, have already made themselves enemies of Jesus. They've already tried to set, set traps for Jesus. They've already interrogated Jesus' disciples about his views and his practices. And they'll continue to do the same kinds of things. But back in Matthew 9, you know, we read about the Pharisees doing the same kind of thing, asking the disciples, why does your teacher eat with sinners? Why does he do something that's obviously bad? Right? And that kind of question, it puts pressure on the disciples to explain and justify and defend Jesus from attacks, maybe. Either that or, you know, it really is a temptation to abandon Jesus, distance yourself from Jesus, the one who's doing the obviously bad things, you know, distance yourself from his teachings. That's the kind of question Peter gets asked here again in Capernaum. The collectors of this two drachma tax is equal to a half shekel tax. Uh, They went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? So that's passive aggressive, right? Why? Why don't they ask Jesus whether he's going to pay the tax? The IRS guy doesn't ask you whether your friend is going to pay the tax. It seems like they want to confront Jesus, but not directly. So they confront his disciple, Peter, with this question. Peter, you answer to us. You tell us if your teacher plans not to pay the tax. The way they phrase the question you know, that they're not asking a genuine question whether Jesus is, we're, we honestly want to know, just, is Jesus going to pay this tax? <clears throat> they're expecting Jesus to oppose the rules. They're expecting him to buck the system and refuse to pay the tax, probably, for some reason, right? Because in their opinion, in their experience, Jesus has come along just turning everything upside down, causing trouble wherever he can. Is this just going to be another point of conflict? It is, isn't it? This is going to be another point of conflict with Jesus. He's he's just going to subvert this ancient, biblical, religious, cultural tradition of our people. He's going to do that, isn't he? I mean, maybe they know that Jesus has just been out in Gentile country blessing all kinds of bad people who are not Israelites, blessing all kinds of foreigners who are not his own people. How patriotic is that? Jesus isn't going to be patriotic, is he? He isn't going to do his part and support the temple, is he? He's He's not going to do what's best for the Jews, for his own people. We probably don't even need to ask him whether he's going to pay this tax. There's an assumption here, right? The way they ask the question. It's easy to imagine Peter feeling the pressures of a question like this. After all, Peter is uh, pretty sensitive to peer pressure. Uh, We will see that surface very clearly in his threefold and passionate denial of Jesus later on. Peter suffers from the fear of men. Peter likes to avoid at least certain kinds of conflict. And it seems that Peter's response is uh, unthinking. It's instinctive. Yes, of course. It's a knee-jerk reaction. Yes, of course, Jesus is going to pay. He's a good Jew. He's a patriot. Yeah. Everybody pays the tax. We're going to pay the tax. He's going to pay it. Uh... In a sense, Peter misunderstands Jesus, and Peter misrepresents Jesus to others, and Peter obligates Jesus to do what Peter said he would do. That's not great. Uh, In fact, it's pretty bad for Peter to respond to the pressure of the question that way. 
uh, he could definitely have taken the opportunity just to stop and think. Stop and think, to reflect on what he knows about Jesus, how Jesus always has such a radically different approach to life and everything that at least would give Peter pause to speak on his behalf. At least Peter should have said, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what Jesus thinks about paying this tax. Uh, Let's you and me go ask him together. That should be fun. Let's do that. That's what he should have said. I mean, at least. But instead, Peter spoke on instinct. He made assumptions about Jesus. And he said what he thought would keep these tax collectors happy, the temple tax collectors. It sure sounds uh, like he's being driven by a a people-pleasing impulse there, by the fear of conflict, by the fear of men. And in that, he is failing to know Jesus And he's failing to live out of his relationship with Jesus. He's failing to bear true witness about Jesus. And he's failing to live out his relationship of sonship to God. But it's not the end of the world. Jesus is patient with his people when they misunderstand him. He's patient with his people when they misrepresent him. He's patient. He's even willing to uh, fulfill the obligations that we wrongly place on him. Jesus comes to Peter in a remarkably patient and gentle way to tell him that being a son of God changes how he relates to this whole situation, to every part of it. When Peter came to the house, verse 25, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? So before we go any further, just simple words there, it's worth noticing Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus knows what happened. Jesus knows what's going on inside of Peter. Jesus knows what Peter needs to hear. Jesus addresses him as Simon. I'm calling him Peter throughout this because Jesus has already renamed him Peter, which means rock, you know, sort of that representation of somebody who's faithful. Uh, But he calls him Simon. He addresses him as Simon rather than Peter because, you know, he's acting like the old Simon rather than like the new Peter. And Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? Well, that's what Peter should have done in the first place. He should have thought reflectively about what he knows about Jesus rather than just reacting reflexively out of his assumptions. Uh, Jesus invites us all to think about what it means to know him. He invites us all to think, think about what it means to live in relationship with him, to live out of that relationship of sonship to God in this world. Always be thinking about what that means. Jesus invites each one of us to think. He doesn't invite just the leaders of the church to think on your behalf. He, he invites you to think, to hear the gospel, to think about it, to consider how to apply it to every part of your life. What God has revealed about who he is, what he has revealed about your relationship with him in Christ, how does this good news have bearing on this moment in your life? That's what we're called to do. So Jesus invites Peter to think about this little parable that he comes up with uh, on the spot. Think together with him. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. 
So Jesus is giving us a lot to think about here. He uses the example of these worldly kings, kings of the earth, who obviously give great honor and privilege to their, their own sons. Right? Princes are their sons of the king. They're not subjects like everyone else. And their relationship, that special relationship of sonship to the king, it changes everything about their life in the kingdom. Even the way they relate to laws and to other people especially. But worldly kings, we know they abuse their authority more often than not, and they would perhaps grant unjust exemptions and pardons to their own sons. But it serves as an analogy to some extent. It's sort of like you know an argument from the lesser to the greater If earthly kings grant special freedoms and privileges to their sons, what do you think? How much more does the Heavenly Father grant freedom to his sons? The the Heavenly Father is perfect and good and righteous. He never abuses his authority or does injustice in what he grants to his children. He declares that his sons are free. Free from what? The sons of God are free from the slavery of living to fulfill expectations. That's kind of what it boils down to. The sons of God are free from the slavery of living to fulfill expectations. So whether you're talking about the ancient religious and cultural practices of Israel that result in this regular temple taxation, that's an expectation. Or... You know, the knee-jerk instincts of a people-pleaser who suffers from the fear of men living to meet their expectations. Or even the requirements of the very law of God itself. The sons of God are free. Our relationship with God has been, finally and forever, graciously established for us in Christ. It is the relationship of the Father and the Son that's been opened up to us and shared with us. And that relationship of sonship means that we are free from living as slaves. We're free from slavery to the fear of others. We're free from slavery to perform, to please, to satisfy or fulfill expectations that others have for us, whether... You know, those be the expectations, maybe we have those for ourselves, the expectations that people, other people really do place on us or have for us. Even the expectations of God, we're free. A slave has to live for the sake of getting something that he doesn't have. That's what a slave does. He has to meet expectations. He has to fulfill expectations to get something that he does not have. That's the way of life to which sinners are bound as they try to get life apart from God. But as sons, we don't have to live to try to get something that we don't have. We don't have to live for the sake of what others think about us. We don't even have to strive to live up to God's standards in order to gain acceptance from God. We already have God's acceptance. We already have the best thing there is. We already have sonship. We are, we're already his sons. We already have established for us by God a relationship of unfathomable, eternal significance. If we live as slaves to the law of God, if we live as slaves to religious or cultural expectations, 
If we live as slaves to the opinions of other people, then living as a slave in those things is a testimony, really, that we believe we lack the thing that's most important to us. That thing that we want and need most, that ultimate acceptance, that sense of being beloved, that divine joy, that thing we want and need most, we believe others might give it to us. That God might give it to us if we behave ourselves and meet their expectations. We don't have it yet. But maybe if we perform well enough. But that's not how God relates to his sons, to his children in Christ. He gives the acceptance. He gives the love. He gives the joy, the peace. Up front, through faith in Jesus Christ, the beloved son, the first thing you you already are, before you even thought about it, is a beloved child of God. That's the gift of his grace that he gives you, even though you're a sinner who will never live up to his expectations. Never live up to perfect sonship, the standard of sonship that we see in Jesus. That gift of sonship is the starting point of every moment in your life. The sons of God are free, truly free. And the remarkable thing is that Jesus is telling Peter here, Simon, you are a son, and that means freedom. You, Peter, even though you didn't realize that's what it meant to know me, is that you're a son of God. Even though you really didn't think about me in this moment, even though you really weren't living in relationship with me just then, even though you made bad assumptions about me and misspoke about me and signed me up to pay this tax, even so, I share my sonship with you. I take your burden as an obligation upon myself, and I set you free by sharing with you my sonship, my own relationship with the Father. This is good news that you need to hear that will radically change the way that you live in this world at every moment. You never have to live in fear again. Whether it's the fear of other people or even the fear of living up to God's expectations. The impulse to be a people pleaser I could just go ahead and die. And if you want to be a God pleaser, insofar as that is the same impulse as it is with people pleasing, to try to impress God, to make him think well of you, to try to shape his opinion of you, to be favorable towards you, that impulse can go ahead and die too. You're free from it. Because God is already pleased with you as he sees you in Christ, the beloved son with whom he already is and evermore shall be well pleased. So what do you think? Think about what the freedom of beloved sonship means for how you participate in religious and cultural traditions. Think about how the freedom of beloved sonship changes the way you relate to God's commandments. Think about how the freedom of sonship changes your relationship to other people. Paul thinks about these things with us in his letter to the Galatians. Uh, The Galatians were tempted to continue in slavery to the biblical and religious and cultural customs of the Jews. 
The Galatians thought that, you know, in order to shape God's opinion of us and keep God happy with us, God would accept us in order to be accepted by the, the Jews who are in the church. We've got to fulfill the expectations of Jewish law. We've got to be circumcised. But Paul reminds them that that's slavery. That's not freedom. He reminds them very strongly of the true gospel of Jesus Christ that has set them free from the requirements of the law. So he says in Galatians 3, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. As children of God, believers have a new relationship with the word of God. The word does not evoke slavish fear. The word proclaims the love of God, and it evokes our loving response. Our relationship with the word is now characterized by mutual love. In fact, for the children of God, love is the fulfillment of the whole law. That's what Paul says, Galatians 5. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where Jesus goes with this conversation with Peter in our passage. He says, the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, get the fish, take the shekel, give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus shares our life. And he shares his life with us. Peter had obligated Jesus to pay the tax instead of refusing to pay the tax because Jesus, as the son, is free. He doesn't have to pay the tax. Instead of refusing to pay, he paid for himself and for Peter. <clears throat> he paid miraculously with this coin from the fish's mouth, which, you know, this is a divine confirmation of Christ's sonship and of ours. Divine confirmation of the truth of what he's saying, right? When, when Jesus is saying the sons of God are free, that's true. The miracle is proof that his words have come from God. And here's the ultimate significance of Jesus revealing this sonship and this freedom to us. As the beloved son, yeah, Jesus was free from the tax. Even more, he was free to pay the tax. That may not make much sense to you. The true freedom of the sons of God is not just, hey, you do you. You're free to do whatever you want. You never have to take into consideration anybody else or anything else. Freedom from living to get something from other people, like their good opinion or their favor or whatever. It doesn't mean if you're free from that, you don't, you don't care for them or you don't consider them. Freedom from living to get something from others means freedom to give to others. Freedom from fear means freedom for love. That's the true freedom of the sons of God. Freedom to love. Freedom to live for the sake of others, not just for myself. This is nothing less than divine freedom. This is what divine freedom really is. 
As we sometimes pray in our confession of sin, God is majestic in his freedom to love, even to love the unlovely. He made us to share that glory with him. And in Christ, he restores us to this true freedom in communion with himself. So God, God's not enslaved to the opinion of others. He doesn't live to meet people's expectations. He doesn't feel any need to fulfill our expectations to get something from us so that he'll be okay. God is free to love us, even if his love looks like slavery. Jesus tells Peter, as a son, you're free. You're free from the temple tax. You're free from fearing the tax collectors. Only do not use your freedom to just fulfill your own desires. Use your freedom to love them. That means paying the tax, which is exactly the same thing a non-son would do. What a slave would do. You're so free from their expectations, you're free to give them no offense, even though it's costly. Jesus is free to love. He didn't have to pay the tax, but he did pay the tax for himself and for Peter. Jesus is free to love. He didn't have to pay for our sins, but he did pay for our sins, just as if he were paying for his own sins. Jesus is free to love, even though his love meant going to the cross, which looks like to to all the world like something he was forced to do as if his rights were stripped away, as if he were required to forfeit his life. At the cross, it looked like Jesus' freedom was being taken away from him. But in truth, it it was the very exercise of his freedom to love us. Do you see how he was free to take the place of a servant and a slave? Do you see how his actions of love are free, that the beloved son is truly free in spite of appearing like a common subject? What do you think it means for you that he has willingly taken your burden before God on himself, that he's freely paid for your debt to God, a debt that he did not owe? What do you think It means for you that he has opened the freedom of his beloved sonship to you. What do you think it means for you that God has fully accepted you and that he has loved you with an irrevocable love? It means you find your life in your sonship. It means you find your life in participating in his love and you glorify God in the freedom of your sonship. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right. So just like Jesus told Peter to give no offense to those temple tax collectors, Paul imitates Jesus in wanting to give offense to no one. He says he tries to please everyone. That's not people-pleasing as we usually think about it, which is done to seek one's own advantage. It's the exact opposite of people-pleasing like that. That's slavery to self-love. It's dictating, you know, that you seek to manipulate others by living up to their expectations. But Paul seeks to please others and give no offense for their sake, for their sake, to love them. 
to remove obstacles between them and God so that they too can meet Jesus and share in his sonship. That freedom that Paul enjoys to love and give no offense and please others it looks exactly like the fear of men to a lot of people. It looks like slavery to their opinion. It can manifest itself in the very same actions, but it is quite the opposite. In this, Paul is imitating Jesus, and he invites us to do the same. You don't have to spend all your life's energies trying to attain something you don't have. You don't have to feel the pressure and the stress of trying to fit in with everybody around you. You don't have to work hard to keep them happy with you or to make God happy with you. You're free to please them. The sons are free. What do you think? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so glad to be able to call you our father, even as Jesus, your beloved son, calls you father and has invited us to do with him. We pray that you'd help us to hear this word, this gift of sonship, and to receive it with faith by the power of your spirit in us and to think about what it means. We want to know you and to know what kind of God you are, to know your works in the freedom of sonship. So help us, help us to think, to consider the implications of the freedom of sonship. Each one of us throughout our lives, in every relationship that we have, in every moment, help us to enjoy this freedom in our life with you and to share this freedom with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.